Good morning and happy Easter. My name is Doug Holcomb. I'm the senior pastor here at Live Oak. Thank you so much for spending Easter with us. I'm glad we can do that together. Today, what we do, what millions of Christians do around the world on this day, we celebrate the truth that Jesus was dead on Friday, but alive by Sunday. He rose from the dead. He is risen. Never have I had someone, there's one little feedback, I've never had, I've never had somebody go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, could you, could you repeat that again? You're saying, what now? Like, no one ever going to go, no, 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 no. No one, probably you were expecting us to talk about that Jesus rose from the dead today, right? That's what you were expecting? Like, like that, that's typically what happens. It's happened for 2,000 years on this Sunday. We're not sh- shocked. We don't treat it like an April Fool's joke. We don't think someone's, like, we're not surprised by it. We expect to hear that. But the first followers of Jesus were absolutely shocked. Their Easter plans, I don't know what yours are, their Easter plans on that first Easter, they didn't call it Easter then, their Sunday plans on their to-do list was go to the grave of Jesus, check, go to the body, finish preparations for burial, and they were expecting to see a dead body. And they show up, and Jesus isn't there. They were shocked. As a matter of fact, somebody was there kind of giving him some information, saying, hey, remember this? Watch this in Luke. It says this, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you? Like, like he called his shot. He said, okay, I'm going to die. On the third day, the Son of Man will be raised up. They're like, yeah, 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 okay. But they didn't remember. Even when they get there and go, okay, it's three days later, and where's Jesus? Who took his body? He says, you are in Galilee, and this is exactly what he said. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then when they're reminded of that, he says, then they remembered his words. They were shocked. We're not shocked, but they were shocked. They were not expecting this. And even after they're told this, and they see the empty tomb, and they're told this, in a very spectacular way, there's some of them are still aren't sure. They're not sure if they believe. But the Christian faith, at its very heart of it, what's essential to it, it's not about what Jesus said and did before he died. It's about what happened after he died. He rose from the dead. It's the key to the Christian faith. If you take that away, everything that Jesus said about himself and everything he taught about you and the world and life, it doesn't matter if he's not raised from the dead. They were shocked, but then they saw it, and eventually they all believed. But we're not shocked. Maybe for us, because it's become so familiar, we're used to hearing it. Like, we expect to hear that, we're like, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, and it loses its impact on us. Or maybe we don't connect the dots of the significance or the uniqueness of it. For some of us, it may feel more fairy tale than fact. You know, we've had people teach us this, and we've heard it before, but did someone just kind of make this up to help us feel better about life and death? And was this kind of the disciples embarrassed that maybe they kind of put all their eggs in the basket of Jesus, and then he, didn't, he died, and so they thought, we've got to make up something? Like, is it more fairy tale? Is it more fiction? For some, it may feel like it just feels very foreign. Like, it's hard in Lubbock, Texas, in 2018, to wrap your head around what it was like and what it means 
or something that happened 2,000 years ago, or because it happened 2,000 years ago, what difference does it make today? What difference does it make? And that is a great question to ask. Always ask yourself the question, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago mean today on an average Monday? What difference does it make in my life? What difference does it make in, in the world? Well, on Easter, we celebrate something that's incredibly important. And the further we get away from that resurrection of Jesus, that date that happened 2,000 years ago, the further away we get away from that, the harder it may seem to believe. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. My dad wasn't there. My grandfather wasn't there. My great-grandfather wasn't there. My great-great-grandfather was there. And I can keep going through greats, 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 great-grandfathers that weren't there. So how do we know? And what difference does it make? It seems harder to believe, but think about this. 2,000 years later, the resurrection of Jesus still gathers a crowd to celebrate and gathers a crowd of people who say, we believe that Jesus is alive, he's risen, and he's making a difference in my life. See, Easter isn't just about what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead. It's also about what the risen Jesus does in lives today. That he is alive and at work in people's lives, in people's marriages, in people's homes, in in people. And there's this incredible promise that was given to you, not given to the people that were there, but were given specially and uniquely to you, that becomes more and more important the further we get away from that day when Jesus rose from the dead. That without seeing it in person and seeing it for yourself and being able to touch and see it and experience it personally, there is a promise for, for, for you that the further in history we get away from that, the more important it becomes. So today, what I want to do is look at the resurrection through the eyes of somebody that was really there, but someone who had some real struggles, and God made a very real promise, not to him, but to you. And if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'll share it on screen. You could probably get one on your phone if you wanted to read it. And if you don't own a Bible, I'd be glad to get you one, because don't take my word for it. Take the words of the people that were there. And the guy who's there that writes this gospel, it's the gospel of John. John was one of the 12 disciples. He was probably the one that was closest to Jesus. And it was the gospel that was written last. They wrote Matthew, who was a disciple, Mark and Luke. Those gospels were written. And then John wrote his last. And he actually says, you know what? There was another disciple that really struggled, that Jesus had several interactions with, that is not recorded in the other gospels. It's a unique insight and glimpse into this guy. It's a guy named Thomas. Thomas had a nickname. Does anyone know his nickname? Yeah, if you said Doubting Thomas, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Like, it's like, it's a trick question. I felt bad with the third service now. I feel real guilty because like everyone's going to say Doubting Thomas. That wasn't his nickname. This was his nickname. John chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, that's the Greek word for the, for the word twin. Not for doubter. He must have had a twin brother or a twin sister, but every time it refers to him and says, he's AKA, also known as, it's not doubting Thomas. It's Didymus, the twin. And he's got this nickname that we've kind of given him later in life, but even that may not be the best nickname for him. There's a better one. Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the 12 disciples when Jesus came. Because initially, Jesus rose from the dead, and he appeared to several of them individually and then in groups. 
And apparently he had met with a group of disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And they come back and they say, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And that's just not going to do it for Thomas. Because he does, in some ways, earn a nickname like Doubting Thomas. He doesn't believe. And he trusts these guys. And they didn't believe. They didn't understand. They had forgotten. They weren't expecting to see Jesus alive. But then they come back saying, Jesus is alive. And Thomas says, I just can't wrap my head around that. Thomas says this. He says to the disciples, look, I know you believe, but unless... I see the nail marks in his hands. I got to see it. And I even want to put my finger in it, right where the nail went through. And I want to put my hand into his side. When Jesus was crucified, he was nailed through his wrist and, and feet. But the way the Romans confirmed somebody was dead wasn't by checking their pulse. It was running a sword through their side and to see what came out. It's gross, but it's what they did. And it left a pretty big wound. And Thomas said, I want to see that. I don't know if he was expecting a stunt double or a stand-in or someone trying to trick him, but he said, whatever it takes, he goes, I have three conditions. I want to see it, I want to touch it, and I want to put my hand in it. Or I will not believe. Doubting Thomas is the nickname he earns, but he's really more pessimist than anything. There's only three interactions of Thomas kind of being singled out in the Gospel of John and none of the other Gospels. And every one, he kind of has this pessimist perspective. Even this one, look at this. He goes, unless I see it, I will not believe. Not, if I see these three things, I'll believe. It was, I will not believe. Another time, Jesus was traveling, and he was about to make his final turn on, on as he kind of traveled around to head to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. And the disciples said, hey, you want to go back to Judea, to the town of Bethany? It's like, yeah. And just for a reference, Bethany be like saying, I'm going to go to Wolferth. It's really close to Lubbock. Bethany was the Wolferth of the Mideast to Jerusalem, okay? That's not a biblical scholar thing. That's just like, how do I try to explain this? Like, if you're going to Wolferth, it's like you're going to Lubbock. And they said, you know, if you go there, remember what happened last time? They were going to kill you. Jesus, they're going to kill you. He said, yeah, probably so. That's, the, that's, that's true. So Thomas, doubting Thomas, steps forward and says, guys, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, there's the pessimist comes out in him, right? Let us go that we may die with him. Not like, hey, Jesus, maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe they'll just give you a reprimand. Maybe they'll just shake their fist and say, why I oughta? Or or maybe we could defend him. Guys, let's go with him and protect him. Or not like, Jesus, it'll work okay. We know who you are. You're the son of God. It'll work out. Instead, he goes, let's go that we may die with him. Wah, wah. He's a pessimist. But he was loyal. You may doubt his reputation, and he may be doubting Thomas to us. But he says, let's go. I'll die with him. Let's go. But there's that pessimist side. There was another time where Jesus was saying, hey, guys, I'm going to prepare a place for you that there's more to this life and after you're done, if you're with me, there's a place for you that I'm going to prepare for you in heaven. And Thomas raises his hand and he goes, we don't know where you're talking about. We don't know how to get there. We just don't understand Jesus. And John, again, gives us this insight that Thomas was always this guy that's like, we don't get it. We're going to, you're going to, we're going to die with him. We don't get it. 
He was always this pessimist perspective. Unless I see, I won't believe. He was a pessimist, but he was loyal. And he loved Jesus enough to say, I'm willing to die with him. But when he heard that Jesus was alive, he said, I won't believe unless I see it, I touch it, I put my hand in the side. I will not believe. Let me tell you what he gets right, though. He got real about his struggle. He got real about his doubt. He could have just sat there and said, well, that's interesting, guys. I'm glad you saw him. Good for you. Or, I bet you did. Or he could have just sat back and just not said anything. He got real about his struggle. He got real about his doubts. He was honest about his doubts. And I want to challenge you to do what Thomas did. If you have doubts, get real about it. If you have a struggle of any kind, get real about it. That's what Thomas did. And some of us struggle with doubt in two, one of two different ways. One, we either doubt who Jesus is and what really happened and then all the facts about his identity and the, the, the resurrection and all those things. We doubt that. Or we doubt what Jesus says about us. We either doubt the identity of Jesus, of who he really is, or we doubt the identity of who we really are because of what Jesus has done for us. Well, yeah, he may have risen from the dead and done that for all those people, but not me. I'm not that valuable. I've done too much. I've got too big a struggle that I've created myself. It's my fault. I doubt what he says about me is really true, that I'm free, forgiven, a child of God, a new creation. I I just don't believe that. We We struggle with doubt in different ways. And doubting the identity of Jesus or your identity in Christ can easily lead to a negative impact on your life. It'll make a difference. Your belief, whatever it is, will make a difference. But Jesus shows up in this place of struggle and meets him. Watch this, verse 26. A week later, he's dealing with this for a week. We don't know how often they were getting together, but it's been a week. Where he says, unless I see, unless I touch, unless I do this, I'm not going to believe. And he wrestled with this doubt. Of his friends saying, we've seen it and we believed it. He probably sees, saw a change in their behavior, change in their belief. And he's going, I'm not sure what to make of this, but a week later, the disciples were in the house again, but this time Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, now this is not a little footnote to say, the curtains were blue, the tables had 12 chairs around it, and the doors were locked. This is a statement saying, this was a house that they was designed to keep people out because they still thought And the ones that believed he was alive. Jesus may be alive, but we're probably going to be dead because we're with him. And they know it. The ones who killed Jesus will probably come for us next. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When you're in a place of struggle, it may seem insurmountable. It may seem like... I. Jesus may have rose from the dead, but I don't know if he can get through the situation I'm dealing with. The doors are locked. The walls are high. The pit is too deep. I don't know if he can do it. Jesus specializes in walking into places and out of of tombs and leaving them empty because of who he is and saying to any situation, peace be with you because peace is what he brings and peace is what he gives and peace is who he is and what he wants for you. And he walks into the room and he says, peace be with you. And then he starts scanning the room and he locks eyes with Thomas and says this. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Notice the order of what he says. He doesn't walk in first and say, peace be with most of you, except Thomas, stop doubting and believe. What is the problem? Instead, he responds to the three conditions that Thomas had said. He goes, this is my struggle. I cannot get past this. So he walks in, he says, peace be with you. And then he breaks through the barrier that Thomas had. He said, put your finger here, see it. Reach your hand and put it into my side, right where the spear went through. See, Thomas, now stop doubting and believe. Thomas got real about his struggles and then Jesus showed up in a real way. And Thomas can't help but respond. And his response is found in verse 28. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. It was on the money. Caesar is Lord. But the first followers of Jesus said, nope, Jesus is Lord. He is leader. He is king. And they said, Thomas says, how could I but follow anybody else but him? I've seen it. He was dead. Now he's alive, and I'm convinced. And he says, my Lord and my God, the creator of the universe. A lot of times the disciples say, my Lord and my teacher. But then after the resurrection, they're saying, my Lord and my God. Jesus was more than a teacher. This is the one who created the heavens and the earth and conquered death. And Thomas said, from now on, how could I but worship or follow anybody else? I'm convinced. That was his response. What is your response to what you know or what you believe about Jesus? What is your response? Who is Jesus to you? It's incredibly important that you define that. And for me, I tend to be a bit like Thomas. I tend to be a bit of a pessimist and, or what I would say is a realist at times. And what I would, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm always looking for the, I have doubts and questions and I always kind of like turning things around and thinking about it. I can relate to Thomas. And I'm kind of jealous of him because Thomas had an advantage that I don't. I don't have his benefit of touching it and seeing it for myself. And I think sometimes, wouldn't it be easier if I was there and I could say, hey, I've got those three conditions too. Can I see it and touch it and put my hand in it too? Could I just see it for myself, hands-on learning? It would really help. But there's a, Jesus has this conversation with Thomas about you and gives a promise that wasn't applicable to Thomas. It's uniquely applicable to your life. Jesus says this to Thomas. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. You saw, you believed. But then he talks to Thomas about you. He says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen, who haven't touched, and yet believed. And many of you today, you showed up today maybe for one of a couple reasons. One, because you believe. He's talking to you. There's a promise for you. Or somebody said, hey, I'll buy you lunch after or well, we'll go on a date or whatever, the pro- whatever got you here, whatever it is. Maybe you came for a different reason, but many of you came because I believe. I believe. Jesus is talking about you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There is this unique promise that's attached to your belief. What he says, this promise, is belief brings blessing. That blessing follows belief, and belief brings blessing. It's an amazing promise he tells Thomas about, that of the people who would believe, because he would then go out and tell people what he saw to be true. And people who never saw it would believe, and he said, they're going to be blessed. Well, what does that mean? It's a word we use a lot. Sometimes, a lot of times we misuse it. 
We misunderstand it or we totally miss it altogether. But the Bible talks a lot about the idea of being blessed. But what does that mean? The Bible was originally written in Greek, and so every time there's a word like that, blessed, there was a Greek word you have to translate into whatever language you speak. And for some of us, it's English. Someone in the room, I know it's Norwegian. Some of us, it might be Spanish. My kid's native language is Lingala. Like you try and translate to that language, and it's, it's challenging. Well, blessed is this Greek word makarios. It's where we get the word macaroni and cheese from. No, I'm just kidding, it's not. But, but that is goodness, right? You're blessed if you have good macaroni and cheese. Especially if it's baked with crumbles on top. Like that's ble- You're blessed if you have that. No, the word makarios, it means, it means to have favor with God. Uniquely favored. It, it means more than just being happy. It means to be fully satisfied. Receiving God's favor. Graciously approved by God. You know, it's used over 50 times in the New Testament. It's never tied to material possessions. It's something more than that. Literally, it could be translated, it is to your advantage. So if you were to take that word blessed, you could read it this way. It is to your advantage to have not seen and yet believed. If you're like me and you think, if I could have just been there and seen it and touched it, that would have been better. No, it's to your advantage to have not seen and yet believed. And anytime the Bible speaks about what it means to be blessed, it's usually not tied to something God does or something God gives. It's usually tied to someone, to him. To be uniquely related to and connected to him, that is to your advantage. It is the ultimate advantage. And that's why I believe every day God has one agenda in your life and it's to build your belief so that you will place your trust in him and follow him no matter what. To trust in him no matter what. Thomas saw, and we still call him by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. John never did. And he roomed with him for three years. And he writes about him in the gospel. He doesn't assign him the nickname Doubting Thomas. We do that. And he may have been a pessimist. He may have had a a week of doubt where he heard the truth, but he said, I got to see it. But you cannot doubt the fact that he became convinced about the facts about the risen Jesus. And he was convinced that the fact that Jesus loved him. And he was convinced that Jesus was for him. And that everything Jesus said about his identity, about who Jesus said he was, and everything that Jesus said about Thomas's identity, of who he was because of what Jesus had done, he believed it. He was convinced, are you? If not, get real about your doubts. Get real about your struggle of doubt, if that's true. What holds you back? Because the rest of Thomas' story is not just amazing, it's critically important, otherwise we wouldn't have faith today. Because what the disciples do is they see, they believe, and then they take it to the ends of the earth. Mostly. But eventually they died. All of them, except for one, except for John, at the hands of somebody who said, we're going to take your life because of your belief in Jesus. John, who wrote this gospel, they tried to do that with him. They boiled him in oil. He lived through it. So they put him on this island called Patmos to live out his days. And eventually he died of old age. Although he's probably severely scarred and wounded from being boiled alive, yet miraculously living through it. But he goes on to write the the gospel of John and the book of Revelation. But Thomas, he sees, he believes, he hears the promise that Jesus made about you. 
And he goes and he sees someone and he tells someone that Jesus was rose from the dead. And they go, we don't believe it. He goes, that's a good thing for you. I saw it, but he made a promise to you, not to me, that if you believe, you'll be blessed, even though you didn't see it. And what Thomas did is he was faithful with taking that message. Now we can believe without seeing because he believed after seeing. He saw it. He was convinced. He even pushed back against it and said, I'm not sure. But this guy that was a pessimist or had a doubting perspective in this incident, he clearly loved Jesus before the resurrection. He was clearly loyal. And he had his struggles, but Jesus met him there, and he takes the gospel. Some people said he went to the, the, the place of, uh, city of Babylon. Some people said he went to, to Persia. Some people even think he might have gone to China. Almost everybody agrees in, in tradition and in history that he went to India. And one of the ways they know that today is because if you go to this certain part of India, Thomas is a very popular name. And there are churches that bear the name of Thomas. And there are sites that say Thomas was here. And there is a place where they say, this is where Thomas died for his faith. And Thomas, in a part of India, one day, saying, I know what I saw and I'm convinced, had some soldiers run him through with a spear until he was dead. Think of the, I don't know if irony is the right word, the imagery of that. Thomas who says, I won't believe until I can see the place where the spear went through my Savior. And he touches it and he sees it. He goes, I'm convinced. And then he dies because of a spear wound. And he dies for his faith. And there's a site there where people believe he's buried. Thomas says, I'll die. I'll just go and die with him. And then he sees the risen Jesus. He goes, I'll go to the rest of the world until I die for him. It's amazing how his story goes from this scene of doubt to this deep faith. And the only thing you can point to is he encountered the risen Jesus. And it changed his story. Jesus is in the business of changing stories. Because every story represents a life and lives. What will the rest of your story be? John goes on and tells us why he wrote this gospel in verse 30. John, the disciple, who tells us this insight about Thomas, says, here's why I wrote this for you. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but the ones in here, in the Gospel of John, are written that you may believe. That was his one goal, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may be alive, but not experiencing the life that Jesus has for you, that's uniquely found in Jesus. Thomas said, I don't know where you're telling us to go about this place you've prepared for us. And Jesus said, it's, it's a place, but really, you do, Thomas, know the way because I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. It is to your advantage to have belief in Jesus. That's why this promise is so important. It is to your advantage. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe because there is this promise that your belief today, without seeing, brings blessing. It is to your advantage. And what our, we kind of do is we kind of get lost on this journey of, of seeking this and understanding this. I mean, take your doubts and take your questions, take whatever your struggle is and, and, and be real about it and seek answers and seek truth and seek life. Do that. 
But seek Jesus because ultimately what we do is we end up seeking the blessing instead of seeking the blesser. But the blessing that God promises for us is uniquely found in the person of Jesus. So it's critical that it's about not what he can do for us, but who he is to us. Seek the blessing, but more importantly, seek the blesser. Because there's this promise that's attached. And your struggle may be different than Thomas's. Doubt may not be your struggle. And again, doubt can show up in one of two ways. I doubt who Jesus is or some truth about him or I have questions about him. That's one form of doubt. So it could also be I'm doubting who Jesus says I am because of what he's done for us. And if that's your struggle, get real about your struggle. But maybe doubt's not your struggle. Your struggle might be different than Thomas's, but whatever your struggle is, that's the same Jesus that met him in his place of struggle that I believe wants to show up in the middle of your struggles too. And what if your current struggle or your future struggles is a unique opportunity for the risen Jesus to show up for you to have an encounter with him that changes your story. Next week, we're starting this new series called The Struggle is Real because most of us in life have experienced that that truth, that there are real struggles in life, and it's hard. And the tagline of this series is this, if you do not get real about your struggles, you will continue to really struggle. There's something about getting real about your struggle that Thomas modeled for us that we need to follow his example. Watch this. Why is it that oftentimes, maybe even most of the time, we want to hide our struggles from those around us? We circle around our hardships, temptations, stressors, and trials alone. For the next several weeks at Live Oak, we're acknowledging that the struggle is real. And we're asking the question, what might God be able to do in the midst of our messes if we simply got real about our struggles? Join us for The Struggle is Real, beginning next Sunday at Live Oak. Again, your struggle might be different than Thomas's, but some of us are really struggling. And I believe your struggle is real. It's not easy. So we want to spend some time talking about that and looking together like what is the hope and help that Jesus can uniquely bring to a situation. And sometimes it will be painfully practical, but we want to help each other. But it starts with us saying, I am really struggling. So actually there's a card in either the seat back pocket in front of you or on the ground if you're on the front row. But if every one of you would take out this card and hold it in your hand for a minute, that will give permission for some others to do the same thing. So go ahead and Take out that card, and here's what we want you to do. Tell me your struggle. We're not going to pass around a microphone. We're not going to point you out and have you name it out loud what your struggle is. But here's what we, we, what we know. If you don't get real about your struggles, you will continue to really struggle. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take these cards, and we're going to have it, I, the leadership of this church will have a great sense of knowing. We need to kind of know what the struggles of the people in this room are. Maybe it's something you're struggling with right now. Maybe it's something about the future. Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe it's a struggle you've just recently come through that you think, hey, this is a struggle I had. This is why we want to know about that. It helps us know, one, how to shape the next series to make sure that we address a lot of the struggles that are represented here. 
It helps us know as a church and as people what we can do, what resources to provide. It helps us plan future teaching, especially this next series. But what we want to do is we also want to pray for these, and we want you to do it anonymously. Don't put your name on it. And if you would just write down, this is my struggle, and as you leave today, there'll be baskets by the back door, just drop it in there. And don't look on anyone else's card as they write, but if you would do this, I think it would serve you, it would serve us, it would serve others in a very powerful way if you would write your struggle in this card to help us understand. I'll be honest and say that I will be, I'll write my struggle on a card, but I'll say my struggles out loud over the next couple of weeks. I will tell you what my struggles are. And that's one of the things we believe as leaders at Live Oak, whether it be on staff, board, elders, small group leaders, um, working in student ministry, kids ministry, that leaders go first, which means we've got to model what it looks like to get real about our struggles. So I'm going to do that next week. And that's hard to do when there's a microphone, lights, a stage, an audience, and a camera. But I will, I will do that. And what I ask from you is if you would help me and just write what I struggle or struggles that you have on there are. And if what we're going to do also in this series is we're going to post it on a wall in the foyer for other people to see. These are the struggles that are going on. And ask people, just pray for the person who wrote that. We don't know their name. And if you don't want to post it on the wall, just write an X in the corner. And we won't post it on the wall of what we're doing. But, but the elders and the staff and leaders here at Live Oak, we will be praying for your struggle. And it will help us know what you're struggling with. Does that make sense? Thank you. That's good. Does anybody else make sense to anybody else? Awesome. Would you guys be willing to write your struggle on there and leave it as you leave today? I was very apprehensive. I'm not going to lie. I get the struggle is real. Nobody look at anyone else's paper. We're not going to do handwriting analysis, but I think this will be helpful. Also, something else that's helpful, we believe that our job is to connect people to Christ and community. It's not just following Jesus. We're a child of God, but we're not an only child. Sometimes being with others is helpful, and we can't have discussions in a room like this but we can in small groups. And so we have some new small groups starting this Wednesday, uh, a couple of them actually, that will meet for just four weeks, short-term small group that will discuss the Sunday message and talk about what did we hear, what's our, what's our story, and how do we apply it to our lives. If you would love to jump in one of those groups, sign up on the links on the Live Oak app or the website, uh, and we would love to help get you connected to that group. By signing up on the link or the website, you're not committing to buying a timeshare or anything like that. What you're saying is you want information and we'll help you get connected if that's what you want. Make sense? Awesome. Let's stand for closing prayer. Jesus, thanks that when we pray, we know you hear us because you rose from the dead. You gave us the ultimate proof. Thanks that Thomas did something for us that gives us this great freedom to be real about our struggles and to be real about our doubts. We, we don't want to just doubt in silence. We want to put some words to it because what Thomas showed us is that when he put words to his struggles, you met him there in a very real way that changed his story. It didn't just change his belief, it changed his story. And Jesus, today we celebrate you because you rose from the dead. So everything you said about yourself and everything you taught and everything you said about who we are because of you and the cross and grace and forgiveness, it's true that we are who you say we are because you rose from the dead. Help us to never doubt that. But help us to get real about our struggles because some of us are really struggling. And I pray for those who are really struggling right now that you would break through the barriers in their life and say, peace be with you. Give them your peace because of your presence in their life and help us help each other and help us look to you as we battle these struggles. Thank you 
for what this day represents and the hope that that provides for humanity and for me. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'll be down here at the front if you'd like to talk. Please drop a card with your struggles in it on the, on the way out. Thank you. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.